This podcast provides audio versions of live webinars. Please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Welcome to Listen In, a bite-sized bio podcast series allowing you to access the best of bite-sized bio webinars wherever you are. Hello, this is Ava Amson, welcoming you to this bite-sized bio web seminar, which today is sponsored by Panorama Laboratories. Panorama Laboratories are building tools that make it easier than ever for researchers to produce robust and reproducible science. Today's presentation is titled The Reproducibility Crisis, Why, How and What Now? and is presented by Max Green, who is Founder and Technical Director of Panorama Laboratories. As always, we will have a question and answer session after the presentation, so please type any questions you have into the questions box, which appears on the right-hand side of your screen. I will then put them to our speaker at the end of the talk. The recording of this webinar will also be available on the Bitesize Bio website. So now over to you, Max, for the presentation. Hi everyone, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm Max Green, I'm the founder and technical director of Panorama Laboratories, and today we meet up in this online fashion to discuss one of the cornerstones of science, reproducibility. So in this webinar, there's two things that I want to uh, achieve with you today. Uh, firstly, I want to give you a statistical model for science that can be used to explain uh, why the reproducibility crisis is actually an issue that we have to deal with today. So that's one part of the webinar. In the second part of the webinar, I'm going to give some practical examples for how to deal with the reproducibility crisis on a, uh, on a practical level. So hopefully at the end of this webinar, you'll understand why the reproducibility crisis uh, exists and also have some methods for dealing with the effects of the reproducibility crisis. So first I'll uh, give a bit more of an introduction of myself so you understand why I'm the one giving this webinar. Uh, as I said, I'm Max Green, I'm the founder and technical director of Panorama Laboratories and in short what Panorama Labs does is uh, we de design and develop hardware that collects data so human hands can be removed from the documentation process in the lab. And we've done uh, quite a lot of research into what kind of devices we need. We've discovered quite a few problems and issues with reproducibility uh, in the bioscience environment. And one of the issues that we found with Panorama that uh, we are solving right now is uh, pipetting. We see that pipetting takes place a lot in labs uh, and that there's also a lot that can go wrong. And for some reason, the only documentation that we create around pipetting is a, a little check mark somewhere in a notebook. So we want to change that. So we are building an add-on device for uh, mechanical micropipettes. So all the actions that take place with the are, are, are documented far more objectively. So we measure things like volume setting, we timestamp all the data, uh, we, t we check tip management, and uh, we do all this from simply just a little thing that we can click onto a pipette. So that's what Panorama does. I don't want to go too deep into this. I just want to get into showing you what the reproducibility crisis entails, explain, explain how the reproducibility crisis arises uh, from the statistical models we use for our science. Uh, and then I uh, hope to give some more practical mindset changes that you can implement in your own life and your own scientific endeavor. So you can make sure that the, the science that you do yourself is uh, is properly reproducible. So let's get right into the first part. And I call this first part reproducibility and science. And then uh, I call the second part reproducibility and you. 
So I keep saying reproducibility crisis, and I think it's probably a good idea to start off with a definition for the reproducibility crisis. And uh, obviously, just like everyone always does, I started my research on Wikipedia, and Wikipedia gives the following definition. The reproducibility crisis is the methodological crisis in several scientific fields that describes that many studies are not reproducible. And I'd like to dissect this definition a bit because there's two uh, important aspects to this definition. The first is the definition of what reproducibility exactly means. And the second is uh, methodological, uh, which is uh, an important uh, element of the reproducibility crisis. So first, I'd like to go a bit more into uh, what reproducibility means, because very often it's confused with the term replicability. Some people call the reproducibility crisis the replication crisis. And in the terms of this webinar, that is not entirely correct. So replicability is not the same as reproducibility, but it absolutely is the foundation of it. Replicability implies that the documentation exists of a, a study, of a piece of research, uh, that the piece of research can uh, simply be done again, that the actions of the experiment can be replicated. And reproducibility implies not just that it's being done again, uh, but that uh, the same results follow out of the replication. So uh, replicability is the ability to be able to do a study again, and reproducibility uh, is the ability to gain the same results a second time. We'll go deeper into uh, what exactly methodological is, but it's important to realize already in the definition that uh, it doesn't imply that there's some biological complexity that uh, leads to this reproducibility crisis. It's about the scientific method itself and uh, an issue with it that is causing research to be irreproducible. So now that we've dissected the uh, definition of the reproducibility crisis a bit, I would like to get into a few examples where you can see that the reproducibility crisis is at play. So I've got three examples signed up. So let's go through them one by one. So the first article I want to discuss, and an article that is also uh, very often referenced uh, if there's talk about the reproducibility crisis, is a uh, meta-science article, but it's more of an opinion article. So uh, it's, it's not official published research, but it's still, it's still very interesting and worth mentioning. So Glenn Begley did a, a reproducibility study of uh, academic publications, hallmark publications within the walls of Amgen. So uh, these studies were done first within the university, and they tried to reproduce them uh, within the pharma giant's walls. What they found is quite shocking that uh, of these 53 hallmark uh, cancer studies, they were all oncology-based, uh, they found that only six of them could, could be completely uh, reproduced. So they replicated all these studies, all 53, but only six of them produced the results that the initial publication claimed were relevant. So that's an interesting first example to show you that the reproducibility crisis is an issue uh, and really affects high-level science uh, quite a lot. So let's go to a second example. Uh, you might actually know this second example. It's, it's quite a well-known one. In 2016, Nature did a survey study of uh, many scientific fields to see if there was a reproducibility crisis. So this is all very subjective data. But what we saw is that medicine really stood out as one that doesn't have a lot of trust in the published research. Here you can see that, uh, for instance, engineering and physics do quite well when you look at the uh, expected number of reproducible publications, but medicine and to a lesser extent biology 
are already seen to be less reproducible. And um, we'll get more into this data a bit later because we've actually uh, uh, put out a survey with some of the same questions of this nature research, but have aimed it more specifically at the uh, bioscience field of research. So we'll discuss the results from that study uh, a bit later. But uh, as a summary of this example of uh, the reproducibility crisis, we can see that out of the 203 people that were surveyed about the reproducibility issues, that this is the distribution of trust in uh, medicine as a field that publishes research. So I hope you found those examples of the reproducibility crisis interesting, at least. Uh, and I hope I've also, with those examples, convinced you that there is such a thing as a reproducibility crisis and that it can very seriously affect the way that we fund our research and spend our time on the research. So now, after these examples, I would like to give you at least one explanation for why the reproducibility crisis is such a major thing that we have to deal with in uh, many scientific fields. I'm going to base this part of the webinar on uh, a few articles that I find are very interesting and are absolutely, I absolutely recommend that you should read them, uh, but I'm going to give a slightly less uh, meaty version of these articles in this webinar. So the first so the first of these articles that I really want to discuss is uh, is called Why Most Published Research Findings Are False, and it was written by John Ioannidis. And he's an amazing meta-scientist, and I can absolutely recommend you to go through some of his research because he really gives very clear and robust explanations for, for why scientific models and statistical models uh, are correct or incorrect. So the basis of this article is the statistical model that we can use for hypothesis testing, uh, and we call this the confusion matrix. It's uh, very often used for diagnostic testing, and I'm pretty sure most of you will know it. And roughly what this confusion matrix says is in the, uh, the top row represents whether a hypothesis is true or false, so the actual truth, uh, and the column on the left indicates what the research finds is true. And using this a confusion matrix as a model for science. We are now going to go into how to put some variables and some values into this to show that the reproducibility crisis is such an issue. The first variable in this model is alpha, and this is the p-value threshold. And with an alpha of uh, 0.05, uh, you basically say that one in 20 studies that prove a hypothesis is correct are actually false due to random effects. The second variable in this statistical model is beta, and this represents the probability that a study is incorrect, even though there, in fact, is a relationship between the hypothesis and the outcome of your research. And the inverse of this, one minus beta, the variable that we know is power. So in addition to these well-known variables in the statistical model of our scientific model, John Ioannidis introduces two extra factors into it, uh, and this is the pre-study odds R and bias U. So R, pre-study odds, is an interesting concept. It represents the ratio between true hypotheses and untrue hypotheses. And this is introduced to take into account that obviously before starting your research, the hypothesis is already true or not, even though the research has not been done. And this may feel kind of unintuitive, but a predictive value in statistics is not an abnormal thing to do. Think about the chances of flipping a coin. 
what we can do by using pre-study odds is we can take into account a hypothesis coin flip in which there's a weighted outcome. So we can assume in many scientific fields that the chances of a hypothesis being correct is larger or smaller than the chances of hypotheses being incorrect. And to take this ratio into account before we do the study, we can use pre-study odds R. The second variable that Ioannidis introduces into his model, which you might have not seen in a statistical model before, is bias. And this can be defined as any other reason than low power and p-level significance that can change the outcome of a study. Uh, so bias can obviously be very direct, for instance, uh, a funding opportunity that demands specific results, but can also be far more subtle in the shape of uh, research group culture or personal preferences, or even using slightly less conventional methods in your, in your protocol. These can all lead to a higher probability of a research result being interpreted in the wrong way. Then to create the statistical model that we need to show that the reproducibility crisis can arise from this, uh, we can use a confusion matrix as, as shown. And we can fill in all these variables that we just discussed to represent the probability or the number of publications that end up in one of the quadrants of this confusion matrix. Then to show why most published research findings are, are false, the outcomes of the top row can be used to calculate the positive predictive value. And this number represents the proportion of publications that accept the hypothesis that also represent the actual truth. So this is the top left quadrant, the true positives, uh, divided by the whole top row uh, of the matrix, which represents the total number of positive results. So what Ioannidis does next is to use that positive predictive value and he fills in the variables according to being reasonable and scientific consensus. And uh, I'll quickly go through a few scenarios discussed in this table. So the first practical example that Ioannidis proposes in this table is an adequately powered random clinical trial with little bias and one-to-one -one pre study odds. And uh, we see that uh, with the beta of 0.2, so the 1 minus beta of 0.8, a 1 to 1 R and a 0.1 bias, we see that the positive predictive value, the probability that a positive result is actually positive, is 0.85, which is very reasonable. In the sixth row of this table, we see a representation of adequately powered exploratory research. So if we assume a power of 80%, 1 to 10 study odds, and a 30% bias, we get a positive predictive value of 20%. And that means uh, that with these very reasonable uh, values for these statistical variables, that 20% of the positive results that we get are in fact incorrect representations of the truth. And when you go on with filling out these variables with values that represent any specific situation, you can very quickly come to the conclusion yourself, if you do the calculations for this, that the positive predictive value with the accepted scientific standards is extremely low. And this is one elegant way of explaining why the reproducibility crisis is a thing. 
I hope you understand from this shorter explanation, the positive predictive value uh, shows far more adequately than just the p-value. The reason behind why a research is incorrect, simply due to the, the accepted variables and values thereof in the sciences, in medicine especially. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To access the visuals of this webinar, please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. So after going through this table, I do feel like one element in the model needs a bit more explanation. Bias plays a very important role in how drastically the positive predictive value can decrease. And the exact source of this factor is not immediately clear from the model itself. So for this, I'd like to dive into another article called Meta-Scientific Assessment of Bias in Science. It was published in 2017 and researched by Daniel Fanelli, Rodrigo Costa, and John Ioannidis. So again, this research was quite complicated, so I'll stick a bit more to the conclusions. But this paper looks into various variables associated with publicly available research to see how they influenced published effect sizes and, by extension, the probability of acceptance or rejection of a hypothesis. Again, without going too deep into the methods used for this research, here is a table with the results. And in it, we can see that effects that were annotated with an S in the result column had increased probabilities of causing bias. And to give a bit more insight into where bias comes from, uh, I'll quickly go through a few situations in which we can assume uh, bias to be larger than average. This doesn't give specific reasons for the bias still, but it does show the environmental variables that we can read that can lead to a larger bias. And uh, please keep in mind, this is not my opinion or even an explained phenomenon. It's simply a collection of trends that were found when over 3,000 meta-analyses were compared to each other. So it's kind of meta-analysis of meta-analyses. And uh, these measurable uh, factors seem to be correlated to the probability of increasing or decreasing effect sizes according to these meta-articles. So the first uh, effect I'd like to go into is the small study effects. And it's seen in this meta research that smaller studies are more likely to show larger effects, which would lead to false positives, obviously, uh, or in some cases, false negatives. A proposed reason for this is simply the lower methodological quality of small studies. The next effect uh, I find personally quite interesting, it's uh, grey literature. So smaller effects might lead to a lower publication chance, which leads to grey literature, so unpublished literature like PhD theses and books and personal communications to show smaller effects and, and less bias. So the unpublished state of research might actually indicate that it contains less bias than if it would be published. And this was shown in the, the meta-analysis of, of this paper. So another factor that seems to impact the bias quite a lot is the team size. So it can be seen that the smaller the team is, the, the larger the probability that there's bias involved in this research. And this is probably caused by larger teams having uh, larger amounts uh, of mutual control within the team because there's everyone's relying on each other's results. This also leads to researchers checking each other's results, which in turn leads to less bias. And similar to team size, uh, large distances between researchers 
can also very much decrease the mutual control and thus large distances between researchers is correlated to bias as well. And the last source of these situations of increased bias is research that's done by by young researchers, young scientists, people at the start of their career. And this can be explained in two ways, probably. One of them is obviously the lack of experience working in the lab and doing the research, which means that the, the actual practices let bias sneak into the, the data more easily, but also things like the pressure to publish and the potential for growth can be a uh, conscious or subconscious reason to change the end result. So with the previous examples that I gave you and now this statistical model and having explained uh, the variables and factors that play a role in the statistical model, I hope I've convinced you that the reproducibility crisis is something that is in fact at play. And with this information in the back of our mind, I would like to continue to give you a few mindset changes that uh, can really help you uh, avoid reproducibility issues in your own re research. So in this last part, I hope to explain how our mindsets need to change regarding the scientific method in order to decrease the prevalence of irreproducibility. So here are four mindset changes uh, that will raise the integrity of scientific results within your organization if you haven't already adopted them. We need to adopt a lower p-value threshold. We need to treat our protocols like programmers treat their code. Our studies, we need to realize that our studies are worth nothing if, we have, uh, if they cannot be reproduced. And we need to find where our bias resides. So let's go through these one by one. As we have seen in the second chapter, it can't be said that uh, a low p-value is an indicator for reproducible research, but it absolutely is a prerequisite. The p-value thresholds that we adopt for a specific study have to be representative of that field of study. With the sheer amount of studies that are being done, a good and simple start for most research is to decrease the threshold to 0 0.005 instead of 0 0.05. And what's so helpful about this method is that it, it can also be done to increase the statistical power of research uh, retroactively. So you can go back to already published research and apply a new threshold, and it's less likely to be research that has been subjected to a large amount of type 1 error rates. Uh, again, it's absolutely not a catch-all for, for reproducibility issues, but it can immediately increase research and result quality with minimal, minimal effort. So now we've gone into uh, how to change your p-value to uh, increase the statistical relevance of your research. We're now going more into documentation and uh, protocol management. So the advice I'd like to give is to treat your protocols like programmers treat their code. And the simplest form that can be built on uh, to make as complex as you want is uh, do the following three things timestamp, annotate, and share. The first thing, and this is such a no-brainer, is to timestamp your protocols. Programmers are very good at version history, and we're really, really bad at this in the biosciences. It's so simple, just timestamp your protocols and all these problems with using two old protocols or not knowing which protocol was used to generate which results just solve themselves. The second one is a bit less 
obvious, but annotate your protocols. One of the reasons that uh, code is so easily shared and understood is that proper code is annotated. And you know, if you look at a piece of code, you know that uh, a specific piece of code is meant to do a specific thing. For some reason, we assume that bioscientists always have all this information in their head when they look at a protocol. But obviously, for a new person coming in looking at a new protocol, annotation can help a lot to understand what actually is going on and what parts of the protocol can be adapted to a specific situation. Another thing we can learn from programmers about how to treat our protocols as bioscientists is uh, that we should share our protocols. The moment that you share something with the world, it can, it can be scrutinized and it can receive feedback. And everything that can receive feedback uh, is subject to evolution. This means that the moment we start sharing our protocols more often, uh, it also means that the speed at which our protocols are developed increases dramatically. So now we've talked about p-value and how to treat your protocols. Uh, and there's another big mindset change that we need to engage with to make sure that our science becomes more reproducible. And the next thing I want to talk about is that if a scientific experiment has not been reproduced, that it has no value. And we have to get that, uh, get that into our heads. Let me explain a bit further. The next tip is just a general mindset that we all have to get into uh, regarding our research. That the fact that irreproducible science does not hold value has to become part of all our scientific communication. Most importantly, towards the private and public organizations that invest in our research. There's a lack of funding for reproduction efforts because the consensus is the following. From the funder's perspective, research holds value when it's statistically relevant according to the uh, so-called old rules, as I'll call them now. We as scientists, though, we are aware of the fact that reproducibility is a necessary prerequisite to call a piece of research valuable. And to protect both the scientific value and the economic value, we need a way to communicate effectively that unreproduced science holds no value. And I'd like to give you an anecdote that uh, may help you to do this. So around two years ago, there was a local news item here, uh, which you might recognize because it happens all over the world. A university technology was bought by a larger firm for a few million euros, and it was discovered that the company made billions from that same technology, even though it was paid for with public money. So about a year later, I got into a conversation about this issue with uh, a CEO from a medium large biotech company, and he said the following. I agree that public funding should always lead to societal advancement, but consider this. We're making a technology transaction with a public institution. You don't buy a billion dollar company, you buy a million dollar hint. The probability of even being able to replicate the original study is incredibly low when valorizing university technologies. And I think from this story, we can learn two things. One. A lot of value is lost in the uncertainty of being able to reproduce results. And two, public research funders are not realizing that they're paying for generating hints. So what I hope you learn from this is that when you write your next funding request and you get a rough time to secure funding for a replication of your research, which I know a lot of researchers do, you can always say, do you want me to generate scientific data or do you want me to generate a hint? because that's what an experiment without being reproduced is. The last thing I want to discuss before we get into the Q&A is that we, we need to find where our bias resides. 
As we heard before, bias is a very broad term to describe the probability of research resulting in a conclusion that does not represent the truth um, without taking uh, pre-study odds and type one and two errors into account. And there are some parts of bias that are really complicated to uh, define and even become aware of. But over the many interviews I've done with scientists over the last years, I found that usually scientists have quite a decent clue about specific parts of the work that is subject to bias. Uh, and the easiest way to become aware of those parts of the, their work that cause bias is by asking yourself uh, some specific questions. So to help you do this, and also to find consensus on issues that create a lot of bias, Panorama Labs and Bite Size Bio have teamed up to create a survey together that asks a number of questions that uh, can help you define that bias and what parts of your work create bias uh, more concretely. Before we get into discussing those results, though, I would very quickly like to recap what I hoped you learned from, from this webinar up until now. So first, I hope that the examples of reproducing only six out of 53 hallmark oncology studies and nature's survey, that those were enough to hint at the importance of the reproducibility crisis. So then I explained an extremely simplified version of the publication, why most published research findings are wrong. And if you didn't know these variables before, I hope to have convinced you that the pre-study odds and bias are important and often unaccounted for concepts that influence the positive predictive value drastically. So after, after going through some statistics, we went through a summary of uh, sources of bias to give the abstract variable that we discussed before a little more meaning. Lastly, we went through three concepts that hopefully can help you to produce more reproducible scientific results and help you to convince others to do that as well. These concepts were that you should lower the p-value, that you should treat your protocols like programmers treat their code, and to communicate to organizations that we work in and for that a study without reproduction is just a hint. So now we're going to discuss the final concept, find out where your, where your bias resides. And now we're going live to discuss the reproducibility survey and your answers to that, and hopefully from this discover where bias resides partially, and also to answer some of the questions you might have about the whole webinar. Thanks, Max. That was an excellent presentation. Um, before we're jumping into the Q&A, um, we'll first hear the results of the survey, as you mentioned. But I just wanted to remind everyone in the meantime that you can leave questions for Max in the questions box that appears on the right-hand side of the screen. And we'll get to them after the survey results. Yeah, so thank you, Eva, for the uh, further introduction. Uh, so as I said, we're going into the survey results right now. Uh, and first, I'd like to give you a bit more information about uh, the survey and how it was set out and stuff like that. So uh, first of all, uh, we got about 30 responses for you from you. Thank you very much for that. Uh, um, but uh, also, it means that uh, what we'll be able to see in the data are mostly trends, and we won't be able to uh, get very, very robust conclusions from the data. Uh, secondly, it is an ongoing survey. Um, we uh, uh, we will leave it up for a while at least. Uh, so I hope if you're listening that you can uh, uh, also uh, add your uh, your data to to the data pile, so we can uh, uh, draw uh, conclusions a bit more reliably. Uh, 
quite a lot of these results were, were came in in the last minute. So it's been uh, we we haven't been able to crunch a lot of data. We've been, like I said, we've been able to go through a few trends, but we uh, haven't been able to get into a, a very meaty uh, data analysis. And lastly, uh, this has also been a learning process for us. Um, since launching the survey, we've also done quite a lot of research into uh, the reproducibility of survey data and how to assure that survey data is as robust as, as possible. And uh, uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it's been a learning process for us as well. And uh, uh, there, there will be a next iteration of this survey, which I hope you, uh, you can also answer in the future. So uh, to get into the uh, the data of the survey, the first part, the first thing that we did was uh, do a kind of rerun of this uh, research that Na Nature did uh, a number of years ago. And uh, what we asked is, uh, well, what, what Nature asked was, do you think uh, X has influence on the reproducibility of your results? Or uh, And we did something similar, but instead of asking uh, yes or no questions, we asked to uh, people ask people to fill in a scale from strongly disagree to strongly agree, um, to uh, uh, to see whether they uh, they thought that certain uh, certain elements in in uh, in research influences results. So, um, yeah, I'll just leave this slide for you for for a few seconds so you can so you can look at it and make a bit of sense of it before I uh, uh, say more about the data itself. So yeah, I hope you got a bit of a look at the data and at least an idea of, of what it means uh, by, by looking at it. Um, one thing that is very nice to see about this data is that it's very similar to the to the nature, nature data. As long as, um, uh, so, so the trends say, so for instance, if, if we would group the, the agrees and the disagrees, we would see that the, the order of, of importance would be very similar to, to what nature found within uh, within their own survey, so in the, also in the nature of research, we saw that selective reporting was um, was uh, uh, agreed upon that it was one of the most influential uh, things in reproducibility issues, and that bad luck doesn't really play a very big role. Uh, so uh, yeah, very similar trends to to the nature research that we found, and uh, the second thing that we uh, think we can also very gently draw a conclusion on. Uh, from from or at least that we see trend from in this data is that there's there's two kind of internal systematic issues at play uh, uh, within within research in general and uh, well, one of them is the force from outside of the organization outside of the researcher on the researcher and that force is the pressure to publish that leads to selective reporting and things like that and the other side of the force is uh, the scientists themselves that uh, really want to do their research as diligently as possible, but are kind of pressed by by funding and and uh, uh, well, the, also the pressure to publish. So this is kind of the the, the force field that we see um, uh, see in in many scientific fields, but uh, also very much in bioscience. So the second part part of um, of the survey that we did was to uh, go specifically into uh, bioscience lab issues 
and see what you thought uh, uh, influenced the, the results uh, of, of your research. And uh, we asked this question in a bit of a weird way because we kind of used a double negative here. So we asked uh, which of the following uh, uh, elements of your lab work have not influenced uh, your results in the last six months. And uh, well, in, the, in this data, we can see a trend. And again, this is something that might change a bit if there's more data available. But we see a trend that reagents and samples uh, and the quality thereof uh, seem to um, uh, seem to have an issue uh, or seem to, to bring about issues in the reproducibility of lab, lab results, at least in the perception of the people that are working in the lab. Um, we also did follow-up questions after this question. So, for instance, after the sample quality question, we also uh, asked several uh, yes-no questions to see whether, um, whether you thought that uh, uh, specific things were wrong with the sample quality, but because of the way we uh, we asked the question, it's uh, it, it's very hard to draw conclusions from that, especially with uh, with the the number of results that we have. So uh, we will, for the next iteration of the survey, we will reformulate these questions, and uh, uh, hopefully then uh, gather the data to uh, um, make something. Uh, well, more more valuable and really see where that uh, that bias can can reside and where that that uh, probability of uh, uh, seeing or measuring the the wrong results uh, comes from. So lastly, uh, we went uh, we over the last few years researching reproducibility within Panorama Laboratories. We've uh, interviewed quite a lot of researchers and doctors and. Uh, people in the industry and, and managers to uh, and from those interviews we we have generated a few hypotheses of uh, issues that uh, play a role in in uh, uh, the reproducibility of results in uh, in every organization and uh, we put down we presented these hypotheses to you in the survey and uh, asked whether you can uh, you agreed that uh, these hypotheses were main sources of errors in in the environment that you uh, that you work in, and I'll, I'll again just leave this uh, this slide open for a little while so you can uh, make some sense of it. Okay, so the two trends that we uh, see that our error sources are documentation and human error. We see that. Um, uh, the documentation system is some, uh, seen as uh, a possible source of errors, uh, the actual documentation process itself, and we see that, uh, uh, that there is a general consensus on that, um, uh, that most, most sources of uh, error come from, from human mistakes in, in the documentation process or the, the, the lab process uh, itself. And uh, funnily enough, and we didn't completely expect this, but um, at least from the hypothesis we had, uh, we see that the the facilities are generally uh, more trusted. So, uh, uh, yeah. So, so for instance, the storage facilities uh, seem to be uh, seem to be very adequate in in labs. I mean, not always, but uh, it's it's rarer to see. Um, another uh, hypothesis that came forth from this is that we we put is kind of sneaked in one question, which was relevant for our own. Uh, perpetting uh, issues, and uh, that is that uh, we we put in the the concentration uh, uh, concentration issues caused by liquid handling 
uh, as a potential uh, source of errors. And um, uh, we saw that the, the results were very, very divided on this. And I think the hypothesis that we want to uh, test after seeing the answers to this question is that uh, even though there's consensus over this uh, human error uh, as a source of of error in 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 research in general, that uh, the more detailed you ask the question, is this a source of error? So, for instance, if you asked it about weighing or liquid handling and stuff like that, that the, the more specific the question is, the less likely uh, uh, well researchers are to reach a consensus on whether that uh, causes irreproducibility. And uh, yeah, I think for now, that's that's all the survey results that we have. I think we can go on to the Q&A now. Okay, great. We, we have some questions in the meantime. And again, if anyone has additional questions, maybe based on the survey results you just saw, um, you can post those in the question box on the screen. Um, so the first question is, um, you, you mentioned in, that the survey found that sample and reagent quality is expected to affect reproducibility. Um, how can we solve that? Yeah, so from the first perspective that you get on this is that um, a sample reagent quality seems to be quite an external factor in your lab. You can't really, uh, well, uh, influence the, the quality of the reagents and the samples that you use too much if you work in the lab. But um, uh, th there are ways of kind of mitigating this within within the organization that uh, that you work in in the lab. Uh, the first one is uh, get your samples or your your especially reagents from um, from suppliers that uh, supply the documentation about specific batches very well. And it, it happens quite a lot that there are uh, that there's some variance between batches and there's some suppliers that don't uh, don't supply. Uh, a good good amount of data about that specific batch to be able to um, uh, take that into account in your own research. Uh, but then at the same time, on the inside of your organization, uh, you need to have a kind of persistence of that documentation because uh, uh, some, some, if a supplier does supply um, uh, the data about the reagents that you're, that you're using in your experiments, you need to, uh, uh, well, have that information about that batch persists throughout the whole uh, experimental process so at the end you can also uh, explain uh, aberrations in your results dependent on uh, for instance that uh, um, that initial supplier documentation hmm. so just keeping good documentation throughout would help <laughs> yeah um and Sticking with the question about the survey, um, how many people have responded to the survey so far? And that brings me to a follow-up question right away. Um, can people still answer it if they want to? Yes. So uh, I think we're now at about 42 people that answered the, the survey. So the data I just showed you was from the first 32 or 33. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, absolutely, uh, it is still online. You can still reach it through the web webinar registration page. Um, and uh, I think that page will remain online, if I'm correct. And th there are there are two links in the introductory text for this webinar. And uh, yes, please, please fill in the survey if you haven't yet. The data is very helpful. And uh, we do hope that we can expand this data set to uh, uh, draw better conclusions. And also, as said, we're going to make a uh, second iteration of this uh, uh, of this survey uh, with the, the lessons we've learned from it. Um, uh, just just by reformulating uh, 
the questions to to take uh, proper surveying practices into account a bit more. Uh, and uh, if if you want to stay updated about that, please uh, let us know as well. Okay, we've um, got a few questions about the mindset changes that you mentioned. Um, yeah. First, in general, um, to what extent does adopting this mindset change um, guarantee reproductive Yeah, so um, adopting these mindset changes is obviously not magic magically going to make everything reproducible. But what many people forget is that um, uh, these are prerequisites. It's not. It's not that adopting uh, these mindsets will yeah will will solve it. You need to, um, uh, but but they are all needed to guarantee to some extent uh, reproducibility. The, most of these mindset changes have also come from uh, uh, what we've learned at Panorama from uh, uh, from very industrial labs where everything is documented very documented very very diligently. So um, yeah, to to kind of to guarantee. Uh, uh the the more reproducible results uh the first thing is that documentation of uh results should be extremely uh good but also the the documentation to to aid the replicability should be very good so um the uh so what, what happens now is that a protocol is executed and the results are written down to be uh, a result of that protocol. But in fact, they are a result of the protocol execution and they are often not overlapping. And uh, by, by documenting during the uh, experimental process, you can uh, be far more certain that, that uh, the replicability is guaranteed. Uh, and another another part of this is that obviously the, the execution of, of the protocol should be done very diligently um uh for instance uh when uh, well just stick with uh, pipetting uh, uh yeah you you can't be sloppy in your uh, in your pipetting if you want to uh, have reproducible results either but again that's part of replicability i hope that answers that question well we've got a follow up question about one of the mindset changes in particular um mm -hmm. you mentioned the lower p value threshold yeah. but um there is increasingly a discussion and opinion among some people that the p value on its own is meaningless and that in many cases it has been found that um results are still valid even with p larger than 0.05 so I guess to phrase that as a question is if we ignored p-values, could we still solve the reproducibility crisis? Um, okay, so uh, interesting question. Um, I th uh, there is a lot to say for Bayesian statistics where you assume that everything is one data set. And I think that's the only situation, this is my opinion, but I think that's the only situation in which you could say that the p-value is, uh, is unnecessary. Uh, because, because you are just adding to, to one data set, so you don't have to compare data sets anymore. But the thing is, because of the way that research is structured these days, or has always been, uh, uh, people are, there is no one data set that you're adding to. Everyone is creating uh, different pieces of research. And uh, in order to make sure that, that um, that you don't need to far too radical change and still be able to use the research that's being done, uh, adopting a lower p-value threshold is uh, uh, a first step in a, in a long process. So uh, yeah, to some extent, I do think a p-value threshold should be 
uh, eliminated as uh, uh, this this anchor for for uh, statistical relevance. But uh, th there is a roadmap that we have to follow, and uh, I think is, is most likely to um, guarantee that we do get to a more reproducible scientific field. And uh, the first the first stop on this roadmap is, uh, I think, uh, lowering the p-value threshold, at least one of them. Okay. And um, whose responsibility um, would you say it is to solve all these reproducibility issues? Yeah. So um, obviously, this is not a, a, a one-person job. Mm -hmm. There's there's a lot of a lot of forces at play at the same time. But what I've done, and which you'll also see if I uh, send the, uh, for everyone who wanted the reproducibility booklet, which I'll send out tomorrow for everyone watching live, um, I've I've kind of divided. Uh, uh, everyone involved in bioscience in, in three groups, and I've called it the the quartermasters, so the people that kind of manage the facilities, uh, the prospectors that look into the value of scientific uh, uh, research and fund it, and the uh, the experimenters. And uh, the three roles have to all take their own uh, responsibility in uh, reproducibility issues within an organization uh, at the same time. To, to guarantee that, uh, uh, well, not guarantee, just to have a good chance at uh, uh, increasing the reproducibility in their organization. So quartermasters just have to make sure that the facilities are uh, uh, accessible and, and well taken care of. I mean, things like equipment management have to have to be good to create reproducible science. Um, prospectors, and that's, this is an uh, important one, so the people that, that fund and, and value science have to be made very aware of the fact that um, uh, that if research has not been reproduced that it doesn't have any value uh, the value only kind of should come into existence after it's reproduced so so people funding research uh, the, the prospectors should uh, should take into account that when they fund research that they should also fund for for reproducibility and uh, uh, well at, at least replication to, to start with and lastly, obviously, the experimenters have a big hand in uh, in creating reproducible results as well. But I think this is something that's very inherent to the the, the scientist's mind anyway. You don't want to uh, create untruths in the world. Uh, so uh, as long as the, that, the intention to create proper data is good and um, uh, the, the execution is done diligently, um, uh, that, that should be uh, covered in the role of, of experimenter. So, yeah, the responsibility is shared between those three parties and uh, no one of them can solve it by themselves. And uh, I think a lot of uh, a big part of this is uh, is awareness with all these parties. Okay, and we've got an interesting question quite kind of related to this. Um, do you see any issues that should be addressed by the vendors of scientific instrumentation? Um, Okay, uh, let me think about that for a moment. Uh, uh, instrumentation specifically. Yeah. Uh, well, what, one thing that that kind of kickstarted my journey into uh, into researching this and into starting Panorama Laboratories is, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you an anecdote for this. So the first time that really shocked me was was during a study that, my studies that. Um, uh, I got some results from a spectrophotometer and I forgot to press the print button and the result was lost uh, just simply because I you know, just forgot to press 
the, the print button between between measurements. And it's so easy to to counteract that now. So, so there are more and more systems that uh, that uh, take this this kind of data loss into account. But um, it's so easy to guarantee, or it's, you know, it's it's not easy, but it's so possible to to guarantee the persistence of data that it doesn't make sense that, uh, to to not include it in uh, the manufacturing of equipment anymore. So I think that's a responsibility that should absolutely be taken by uh, equipment vendors and uh, producers to uh, counteract irreproducibility issues. Have you collected any data on the role of data falsification in reproducibility? Okay, so data falsification. Um, this does happen, obviously. Um, I haven't collected any data on it. Uh, I also don't think it's uh, a major issue because most mo most times that data is falsified, it's usually to generate a very, um, oh, it is a problem, but it's, it's a very heavy, uh, heavy result. So, so it kind of, it, the bias becomes very large. The effect sizes are, um, are very large and um uh, because that's the incentive to falsify data right to 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 uh, uh, show something that uh, that that is extreme and because these results are uh, usually very extreme they are uh, often replicated and if it is falsified uh, these replications will uh, well on the long term um uh, be proven to be to be wrong so uh, there there is a kind of a catch for uh, for the falsifications within built within the scientific method itself and the danger of obviously of falsification is that a lot of people waste their time so uh, it's horrible that there is uh, falsifications but uh, in the long term the, the the small little amounts of bias that kind of sneak in and uh, uh, and, and and are not found uh, to be to be wrong are uh, in the long term term far, far more dangerous for for science as a whole in my opinion Okay, great. I think uh, Eva is back with us now, so I'll uh, yes. hand back over. Thanks for yeah. covering. Um, I believe back. we lost all internet. <laughs> so we we have uh, we've got one question left. Um, that's a, a bit of a specific one, but it is interesting. Do you have any data on reproducibility of histological image analysis, which is often inherently subjective? And I think in a in a similar manner. Um, uh, fluorescence microscopy or any image analysis would be would be similar to that yes interesting i um i don't uh, uh actually we, we we did build a uh, gel documentation system at one point before we actually founded the company but uh, and we, we looked into this but I, I can't really say i've got uh, any information properly ready regarding regarding this issue at the moment okay well, maybe in the future, that would be a really interesting yeah. thing to look at. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that brings us to the end of this seminar. So thank you again, uh, Max, for a very illuminating presentation and a great discussion afterwards. And yeah, thank thanks also much. to um, our sponsor, Panorama Laboratories. And finally, thank you to the audience for taking the time to attend and listen in. If you have enjoyed the seminar and you would like to view the video recording of this entire session, um, please visit the seminars page on bitesizebio.com and it should be available within the next 24 hours. And when you're there, you can also see other webinars we have lined up for you. So until next time, good luck in your research and goodbye from all of us at Panorama and Bitesize Bio.
we hope you enjoyed this episode of Listening from Bite Size Bio. To view the full presentation of this webinar or to browse the Listening series, please see the episode description for links. Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for Mentors at Your Benchside in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists.